Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Holy God, our hearts are filled this morning with gratitude and joy as you've seen fit to call us forth to be together in this community of worship today. God, each of us comes bearing concerns, worries, anxieties from the week behind. Each of us comes with our own thoughts already directed toward the the week to come. God, for all that we come bearing this morning, we pray that you would help us to set it aside, that we might find ourselves knit together in communion with one another and with you for this brief moment in this sacred hour, in your presence, receiving again your love, your grace, your kindness, your care, your forgiveness, your healing, your hope. God, we know that you have already been speaking to us through our worship and our fellowship, through our singing and our gifts and tithes and offerings, and now as we read and share in Scripture. May these words from the... New Testament, may these stories of Jesus serve to shape and reshape us according to your will. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This week I was able to read a, uh, a very painful, um, but also beautiful and, and somewhat hopeful essay uh, titled Getting Sober Again. This may be a little bit of a, a trigger warning for those of you who have dealt with alcohol issues in your family. But I thought the words were so poetic that they're a kind of a helpful introduction for us today in this season of Lent. Again, anonymous author, someone who has a deep Christian faith but reflecting on their struggles with alcohol, says this, Has God not made wine to gladden the human heart? Citing Psalm 104, Were we not exhorted to drink with cheerful hearts? Ecclesiastes 9. Do you not know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine so much that everyone drank and were numb? John John chapter 2. Of course, there are passages that prohibit drunkenness, but am I really drunk if I don't puke or get in a fight or black out? These were the biased interpretations that kept me drinking for a decade until I could no longer justify these actions. The last few years of my drinking career were full of carnage, causing extensive misery and anxiety to my family. Alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it made me believe strange and selfish things about myself, such as when my wife was working a night shift that I could be at home alone with my children and drink. But it's hard to justify this at 3 a.m. when your wife is dumping cold water on you, screaming through tears that your kids couldn't wake you up and called her at work, and she lied to her boss to come home and find you passed out. No threats from my wife to leave or tearful pleadings from my children or stern rebukes from friends could cause me to stop drinking. I would not and could not. It was terrifying to realize that I had no ability to endure life's most minor stressors without relying on the bottle. This essay is written anonymously, so we don't know the author's name, but he gives some details about himself. He's actually a a theology professor. This is a seminary professor someone who earned uh, doctorate degrees in Christian thought and belief and practice, someone who teaches at a seminary, an academic institution, teaches people about the Christian faith. This is a deeply dedicated and faithful person, and yet in this essay they outline just how much their life had been ravaged by alcohol and its abuse. Now there is a hopeful turn there at the end of the essay. 
Uh, he writes that he's been sober for three years uh, through a lot of prayer and fasting. Of course, those are themes for the season of Lent through the 12-step process and Alcoholics Anonymous through the support of family and friends. And, of course, he writes about his hope that he can continue to remain sober. As I read that essay this week and thinking about someone who's so accomplished in the, in the professional world, in the academic world, and yet deals with such uh, incredible demons in their private life, it's just sort of a reminder to me that, that none of us, uh, none of our lives are without suffering of some sort or some shape. All of us suffer in different ways. Uh, I've had the chance now to, to pastor in a few different places uh, with lots of different people, people across the financial and the professional and the social spectrum. And I can tell you with, with total confidence that it doesn't matter what people do for a living, how much money they make, where they come from, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. People suffer from things that are more obvious, like uh, health diagnoses or cancer or treatment. Those are the sort of things that often end up on our prayer list, and so we, we know a little bit more about those. Those are more public. Uh, been with many people suffering financially who are just left with financial burdens that their career and their income just don't allow them to, to overcome. Uh, dealt with a lot of people who suffer with broken relationships. In fact, I would guess all of you in here have someone in your family or in your friend circle with whom you have a strained relationship. And that weighs on you all the time. Almost everyone suffers grief. There are three mentions of, of uh, loss of loved ones in our bulletin today there in the prayer list. And if I talk to most of you in here, you could name someone you've lost, a loved one, perhaps a parent, perhaps a, a child, a spouse, a friend. And that's the sort of suffering that you just carry with you for a long time. Today we're going to talk about this text in 1 Peter 3. It's only a few verses, but there's kind of a lot going on there. You might find it helpful to keep your pen and pencil handy. Uh, maybe a note or something I say would be helpful as we think about some of what's going on here in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter is a sort of an odd book. It's at the end of the New Testament. It's one of those little books. Uh, we don't necessarily read it a whole lot. We don't talk about it a whole lot. One reason we don't is because there isn't a whole lot of data in it in terms of who wrote it, when, or where. Right? We tend to like books that we know the author, we know the location, we know the date. We don't really get any of that with First Peter, so we're left to kind of in, interpret what's going on or why the book was written. What appears to be the case is First Peter is written to a group of Gentiles. So these are not Jewish people, these are Gentiles, pagans who have come to follow Jesus uh, in the Roman uh, communities and, and that they're under some sort of persecution or stress, that they're suffering. Right? So one of the themes of First Peter is is how do you handle your suffering? How do you think about your suffering with respect to Jesus? And so this is the verse we read today, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. In order to bring you to God. Uh, one of the things about our, our Christian faith, of course, is that we, we look forward to the, the great moments of joy and celebration as we will uh, have on Easter Sunday. And uh, the, the season of, of Christmas often brings a lot of joy and enthusiasm. It's a temptation to maybe look past the more difficult parts of the human life, the suffering, and to just focus on the joy. But here in Lent, uh, we've been given some permission and some time to think about the challenges in our life, particularly the, the suffering that we experience one thing I think you would agree with me is that we desperately need a God that, that understands our suffering. That we desperately need a God that understands human suffering and the, and the sort of turmoil that wrecks our spirits often day in and day out that often goes unspoken or unacknowledged. 
And so the first thing that we read today in 1 Peter 3.18 is that Christ suffered for the unrighteous. Now certainly that means on the cross and in his death, but I think it means more broadly that, that Christ in his human experience took on the realities of human suffering. And so that when we look at Jesus, we don't look at a God that's sort of far away and, and distant or disconnected. When we look at Jesus, we, we know we have, we have found a God who, who, who aligns God's self with us, who knows what it's like to suffer, who suffers alongside of us. So that's the first little bit of logic here in 1 Peter 3, right? That in Jesus, we see a God who suffers, and in his suffering, he makes a way for us to know and to love and to follow God. That's first point. Uh, second point, what does First Peter say next? Well, it goes on and it gets a little bit weird. This is not the sort of thing we read in a lot of the, the, the text that we use in sermons, but it's a really important part. So I want you to kind of pause and highlight and think with me about what's being said here. First Peter says that he was put to death in the flesh. Of course, that's Christ's death on the cross, but he was made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. All right, this is, a, this is an odd but really important part of the New Testament. We get this reference here in 1 Peter 3, 18, 19, 20. If you flip on over in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 6, there's a similar little line. Ephesians has a little bit of this. The Gospels kind of allude to this. The question that, that 1 Peter is dealing with is, is, where did Jesus go when he died? Right? Uh, we know that his body was put to death on a cross, and then they asked for his body back so that he could have a burial, and so his body was buried in the tomb. But, but where is, is the spirit of Jesus when his body's in the tomb? Well, just a little thread in the New Testament. It's not something we talk a whole lot about, but there's a little bit of this teaching in the New Testament that when Jesus was buried, uh, that his spirit went down to the spirits that were imprisoned in former ages. In other words, he went down to, to Sheol, as the Old Testament calls it. We, we call it hell, right? That there were people across history from the Old Testament who did not know Christ and Christ's salvation and Christ's grace and love, who did not know the power of redemption. And so part of what Jesus does in his death is he goes down and preaches to the spirits in hell, the spirits that are in prison. Now, this is just one of the wonderful paintings we have out of that Renaissance period. The classic teaching around this is called the harrowing of hell. That Jesus goes down to hell while he's dead in the tomb. He goes down to hell and he preaches the good news of salvation and God's love. And he saves those spirits that had been imprisoned from the former days. Now, some of you are thinking, this is pretty weird stuff, Dane, right? <laughs> we don't get a lot of sermons on this. No, you don't because it's not in the Bible a whole lot, but it's there. And so we need to acknowledge it and, in fact, even celebrate it. Because what Peter's doing is he's sort of giving us a, a bigger image, like this sort of broader grasp of the, of the power of Christ and his death and his resurrection, that it sort of stands over and above time, right? That, that even those people that died before Jesus' day and time, that even they have now been given an opportunity to be saved in and through Jesus. In fact, some of the, the medieval art uh, around this, this uh, sometimes called Christus Victor, that Jesus went down to hell and sort of had a spiritual boxing match with the devil, right? And took back the people that, the, that the Satan had been trapping there. I really like this image, and I like particularly this phrase, the spirits in prison. Because spirits in prison is a really great description of, of hell in terms of the sort of what we think about the afterlife, the sort of eternal hell, your spirit being captured in prison. That's a pretty good description. 
But spirits in prison could capture a lot of other hells too. For example, like the essay I begin with, the hell of addiction, right? That's sort of your spirit in prison. The hell of, of loss and grief, that's sort of having your spirit in prison. The hell of fear and anxiety, that's sort of having your, your spirit in prison. And so I like this, this view of Jesus that, that we might say, and, and we kind of reworded 1 Peter 3 here a little bit, that, that in his death, Jesus went to hell and back for the sake of our salvation. That in his death, Jesus went to hell and back for the sake of our salvation, and therefore there is nothing, there is no power in the world, there's no person too far gone, there is nothing that is beyond the power of Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Even if it means going to hell, Jesus will go that far. First Peter continues. Now this is again a little bit a little bit of a weird reach here. So then he kind of makes this argument. He says it's like the days of Noah, right? That that there were some who were put on the ark and God saved them through the ark, eight people, Noah's family. There were some who were put on the ark and then there's another leap here. Uh, and that's sort of like your baptism, right? That the ark and those who were saved on the on, on the ark uh, sort of prefigures, it pre-imagines the way you might be saved in your baptism. Now, that's, that's a lot of sort of spiritual mental gymnastics to get through there, but I want to draw your attention to that, that final line, right? Your baptism, not about removing the dirt from your body, but, but underline this if you're looking at your own bulletin. It's an appeal to God for conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we, we talk about this a lot, or at least I hope we do, right? That, that baptism is not about you as an individual. It's not about uh, something that, that, that you've decided. It's, it's about what Jesus has done. And it's about including you in what Jesus has done. And that's what the author says so clearly here, right? That in your baptism, it's not that you're being cleaned, right, from the dirt of your body. But in your baptism, now God sees you through Christ's resurrection, Right? In your baptism, now God sees you through Christ's resurrection. The way you relate to God now is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The connection here to the ark is a little bit hard to make, but but the point is this, is that the ark, Noah's ark, was God's doing. That was God's gift. That was God's salvation. Of course, Noah built the ark according to God's guidance and wisdom, but, but this was God's way of saving those people. This is God's grace, God's good news. And First Peter says, so it is with baptism. God has chosen to save you through this particular channel, and this channel is, is, the, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's God's doing, it's God's grace and God's love, and now you're permanently connected to the resurrected Jesus, now and forever, and this is the way you commune with God. So your baptism has made a permanent change in who you are. Now, you may remember, of course, that we talked about baptism a lot about, uh, about five or six Sundays ago. We often begin the new year that first Sunday in January talking about baptism. Uh, we remember that Jesus was baptized, and we affirm and celebrate our baptism. We invited you to come forward. We marked you with water, reminding you that you are baptized, because that's the most important thing about you. You're a baptized follower of Jesus. When we had that Sunday celebration, we read from the same text that we read from today, Mark chapter 1. 
You heard it read just a moment ago. It's, it's so brief. Uh, Jesus in, in Mark's gospel, there's no Christmas story. There's no childhood. There's no angels and wise men. There's none of that. Jesus just sort of appears uh, almost out of thin air with John the Baptist at the Jordan, and Jesus is baptized, right? just as we are baptized. So that was sort of the focus in early January. Today we're going to look at that next part of the story. When Jesus is baptized, it sort of initiates his public ministry. His identity is revealed. You are my son, the beloved. And then what does it say happens right after that? Immediately. This is the way Mark's gospel is written. Immediately, as soon as Jesus was baptized, we have this moment of celebration. The Spirit, which is there in the form of the dove, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. That's what we read from today, right? He'll be in the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by Satan. He's with the wild beasts and the angels wait on him. Now, Mark's gospel gives us uh, such, such little detail, right? If you went to Matthew and Luke's gospel, you get a little, a little clearer description of what Jesus is doing in the wilderness, particularly the challenges from Satan, and we might have more to reflect on there. But, but in Mark's gospel, as we've read today, it's kind of left to our imagination, What was it like for Jesus to be in the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan, and to be among the wild beasts? It's funny that Mark includes that line, like that he's among the wild beasts. That might cause in us a little sense of fear, like what sort of wild animals are out there with Jesus, right? When I think about Jesus and his baptism and going out into the wilderness, uh, I think about the stories all the way back in Genesis, You remember that Adam and Eve were created in this perfect order, this perfect relationship with nature and with God, and they were given the responsibility to name all the animals. Do you remember that part of Genesis? That's kind of a neat part, right? They name all the animals, but then eventually in their sin, they disobey God, and do you remember the punishment? They get get expelled from the garden, and they have to go live among the wild beasts, and they have to work the ground, it says, by the sweat of their brow, and by the toil of their hands. They have to go out into the wilderness, and they have to work to provide for themselves. Notice how what happened in Genesis to Adam and Eve is sort of, sort of similar to what Jesus is doing here, right? Jesus' identity is revealed in his baptism. This is God's son, the beloved. But he doesn't just sort of stay in that moment, in that joy of celebration. He immediately goes out into the wilderness with the wild beasts. Sort of recreating Genesis and Adam and Eve. Now, of course, it's not Jesus' sin that that sends him into the wilderness, really. It's kind of humanity's sin. It's Adam and Eve's sin. It's the brokenness of humanity out into the wilderness, tempted by Satan and cared for by the angels. In fact, there's some other kind of Old Testament uh, resonances here, right? Old Testament prophets often talk about the wild beast being at peace with one another, the, the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. Now we have Jesus as sort of the Messiah going out into the wilderness to make peace with the wild beasts. Peace with the wild beasts. I didn't play in that rhyme, but that works well, right? So Jesus is baptized as God's son and then goes out into the wild world with the beast, with the temptations of Satan. And he's there for 40 days, navigating that part of creation, that spiritual battle, that spiritual journey. It says the angels waited on him. I have always been partial uh, to stories of like wilderness and survival. I really loved those as a kid, like a Hatchet, you know, it was a great story, Gary Paulson book. Uh, I love the stories like Robinson Crusoe and Swiss Family Robinson. I've gifted my children all of those books recently uh, because I want them to read them and we can talk about them. 
even in my adulthood, I still love those adventure stories, particularly the, the true stories. Uh, one I, I want to share with you today, uh, you may know about it, um, but it's called uh, Endurance is the novel based on, uh, based on a 1920s transatlantic journey uh, led by Captain Ernest Shackleton. Uh, The novel was written in the 50s using the diaries of the men who were on the ship. The ship's title was Endurance. That's the name of the book. And so they were trying to traverse the the Antarctic Ocean, right, and and, and the uh, ice caps there. Uh, Of course, they have a shipwreck. And so they're, uh, they're, they're locked in the ice channels, and they can't get out for 21 months. For 21 months. I mean, just a remarkable and wild and gruesome story of human survival. The determination that they show, the ways in which they, they provide meals and care for one another. Of course, they keep diaries and they use all the available supplies. They know that there is an island nearby, and so there's a lot of the time is trying to get to this other island to try to get closer uh, towards civilization. They're eventually rescued. It's a, tr- it's a really remarkable story. Uh, they're rescued. Most of them survive, and a lot of credit uh, is given to the captain, uh, Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And at least in the book, he just has this remarkable uh, spirit of leadership, you know, just this refusal uh, to give in or to give up, right? Of course, that's the name of the boat, Endurance. That's the name of the novel, Endurance. Uh, And then he has this quote that is often shared and repeated, through endurance, we conquer. Oh, yeah. Doesn't that make you feel good? That makes you want to beat your chest, right? Through endurance, we conquer. And when you read a story like that about human survival and human will and human determination, it just makes you think, uh, just makes you, think you could do anything right, if you had to. Unfortunately, as much as we like those stories, as much as I'm drawn to them, that sort of heroic instinct, the story of Scripture says sort of the opposite. That there are some things in life, there are some problems in life for which we are simply not strong enough to conquer them ourselves. There are challenges in this world that we simply cannot overcome with our own human will and determination. I want you to hear again the four themes that were drawn out in the scriptures today. They kind of went in this order. We suffer. We suffer all sorts of strange and complicated ways that often go unspoken or unnoticed. We suffer. And therefore, Jesus came and suffered as one of us. He was righteous, but he suffered for the unrighteous. We know what it's like to experience hell, to have our spirits imprisoned, whether we're talking about the eternal afterlife or whether we're talking about just the the hell of our lives sometimes. We know what it means to experience hell. And so what did Jesus do? He went to hell for us. He went to hell for us and preached the good news of God's grace, love, and salvation. Jesus was baptized and went out into the wilderness. We, too, are baptized because we know we live in the wilderness. And so we, too, have that power of Christ's resurrection with us each day, even in our most challenging days. As Jesus was in the wilderness, he made peace with the wild beast and overcame the temptations of Satan through the care of the angels. We, too, what it's like to be challenged by the wild beasts. Maybe not like in ancient times. Maybe we're not threatened by animals day to day, but you can get the metaphor here. We know the chaos of the wild world out there. And so Jesus came to make peace with the wilderness for our sake. 
I hope you hear today real clearly as we begin this season of Lent, as we think about Jesus' passion and his death and, of course, eventually his resurrection at Easter. I hope you hear real clearly that it's not, it's not just an invitation to journey with Jesus these next few Sundays and weeks, but even more so, that Jesus is already with you on your journey. Jesus is already with you on your journey, especially on the darkest and most difficult and most painful days. That there is nowhere you can go, there's no uh, amount of suffering, there's no amount of grief, there's no amount of loss, there's no hell that you can experience that Christ has, has not already experienced himself. That, that wherever you've been, wherever you are now, wherever you might go, Jesus has been there, Jesus is with you, and Jesus will go with you. Paul says it so clear in Romans 8, and this will be our final word for today, this first Sunday of Lent. We are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.